Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallup. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sutkus. Together, we host the Silver Screensavers Podcast, a show about the world of cinema and a celebration of our love of movies. Most of all, we want to hear from you. Please write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail.com. If you like the show, you could really help us out by rating and reviewing on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at screensaverspod. And our Facebook is Silver Screen Savers Podcast. Today, we are discussing Paul Thomas Anderson's latest licorice pizza that will move through the timeline of PTA's career, taking a well-deserved stop at each of his movies. But first... Our weekly watch list. Matt, what have you been watching? Um, So besides watching Licorice Pizza twice over the course of this week in preparation for this episode, the new West Side Story, uh, I've been watching Cobra Kai Season 4, which that's one of those shows that just keeps getting better as it goes on. Uh, I also watched the first episode of Book of Boba Fett. Also looks very promising. And that's about it. All right, Tyler. So this week, basically, I just caught up on some PTA uh, films that I really enjoyed. Just give him a rewatch, ones that I haven't seen in a while, which we'll talk about later. Uh, excellent. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Uh, I watched the Curb Your Enthusiasm season finale. This was, as always, a very strong season. I am just perpetually impressed by the way that they were able to plug in like eight storylines and they all come together at the end tracy Ullman was excellent on this season wasn't my favorite season ever but still better than most of the stuff that's on tv or streaming or whatever whatever realm we're in right now watched a few movies i watched red rocket have either of you guys seen this yet no no i wanted to well i wanted to Well, this is about a former adult film star, Mikey Saber, moving back to his hometown and basically causing mayhem for everyone he comes into contact with. This is directed by Sean Baker and written by Baker and Chris Bergosh. This is one of my most anticipated movies of the year. I love Sean Baker's work, Tangerine, The Florida Project, Starlet. The trailer looked really good. And guys, I really do not like this movie. Um... The story moves along on like just kind of the edge of interesting. There are some funny setups, but I didn't find the humor too much in this. It also wasn't very emotionally engaging. I'm okay with evil slash bad behavior in movies, but there are certain aspects of this one that like just made me feel gross. Uh, I So the way this is set up, this is about, like I said, a porn star who returns to his hometown after this porn career and then you know the whole time that he's moving back towards the porn industry i would have liked to see either of the bookends of this movie i would have liked the movie where he became a porn star or the one after where he's trying to transform somebody else into a porn star the stuff in between was not that interesting Thankfully, we have Boogie Nights, which we will talk about later. I may have to re-examine this one. I don't know, but I I was pretty massively disappointed in this, and I I can't even say that I recommend it, which I never thought that I would say about a Sean Baker film. I also watched The Humans. This is about a young woman and her boyfriend who hosts her family for Thanksgiving in a New York apartment. This is written and directed by Stephen Karam. This is based on his play. This is an A24 film that had a very limited theatrical release and went right to Showtime. Are either of you Showtime subscribers? You are, aren't you, Tyler? 
I am not. I just have access to it, but I don't. It's not even under my membership, so I don't know why I get yeah, it. Because I thought, because I thought you were watching Dexter. I am, but like literally, it's not one of my memberships. But like when I went on it, it just let me watch it. <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny? You know, what? now that now that you say that, I'm thinking about it. So on Pluto TV, there's like there was like a Dexter channel that was playing the new. I think it was Pluto TV. It was playing the new season. I'm like, really. They're just giving this away for free, huh? Apparently. Yeah, I'm giving <laughs> they, it to me. They just assumed free. no one wanted to wanted to pay for it, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I I got a free month of Showtime with a purchase from the NBA store, so <laughs> that's. Yeah, I got it from, with uh, Ticketmaster purchase one time. They yeah. are just giving it away. <laughs> <laughs> like, please just watch this. Yeah. So I this this movie, The Humans. It has a great script and a great cast. Beanie Feldstein, Richard Jenkins, uh, Stephen Young, Amy Schumer is really great in this. This is a movie where there isn't really a central conflict. It's various family resentments and issues that reveal themselves over the course of the night. This, you know, We've seen this kind of thing before. But there is something so strange about this movie. And that the entire time, there are like horror movie elements throughout the camera will move past the characters and linger on these strange spots on the walls, whether they be open doorways or mirrors or water stains. And there are so many times when you think something is going to happen and then the story just moves past it. There are jump scares in this, but they're very like normal, everyday jump scares. Richard Jenkins describes a dream where he encounters a woman with skin pulled over her entire face. And I was like expecting that woman to show up. And it's one of the most effective eerie moods I've ever seen without anything violent or supernatural happening. I haven't, I don't know if I've watched a movie that's quite like this. I Hopefully I've described it effectively. So I, I just want to ask you guys, if you're sitting with a movie and you're feeling creeped out during it, do you want a scary payoff of something crazy to happen? Or are you okay with just kind of sitting in it until the movie ends? It depends on the movie. I'm fine with like a mm. creepy atmosphere that just kind of lingers. But if I'm like going to see a horror movie and nothing happens, then I'm kind of disappointed. Uh, lamb. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. What about what about Malignant? Does that fall into that category? You think? No, Malignant is no scares in all crazy stuff. <laughs> That's how I felt about it. I, I do want to circle back to West Side Story though because I did compose my thoughts a little bit on it now. Okay. So. I saw the new West Side Story. Um, full disclosure, I didn't have the context of having seen the original, so this was my first real exposure to that movie. So I had a very like surface-level knowledge of like what happens and what the conflict is in that movie. And i got to say, Spielberg knocked it out of the park from what I saw. The, the choreography, the direction, the set pieces, just the chemistry between the actors in it... Um, it was all just superb. Um, it actually made me... It almost made me forget that Ansel Elgort was in it for a second. Which was a good thing. As soon as I realized that Ansel Elgort was in it, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but he, he did fine. Would you have walked out of the theater? I mean, no. No, but... <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have walked into the theater. Is there, an, is there any performer for which you would go into a movie, not know they're in it, and then walk out if you saw that they were in it? Gal Gadot. Mm-hmm. 
If she just um, popped up in a movie, I'd be like, no, this is... This is <laughs> you got five minutes left in it. She has a cameo. You're like, ah, that, I, no, not, no, I don't no. need this. <laughs> I, I guess not. I guess... I guess not, but, um... I don't know. Never was a big Ansel Elgort guy anyway, but... Um, I thought he was fine. But the, the movie itself, I think, was a really, really good movie. And I'm not usually a musical guy or, like, a like a play guy. But there, it was it was good. I'm a playboy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no comment on that one. Uh, you have fun over there in that in that Zoom screen. Well, guys, speaking of horror, I did watch the original A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. Uh, for those of you that are unaware, this is about a malevolent man, Freddy Krueger, who hunts teens in their dreams, which lead to their real life deaths. This is written and directed by Wes Craven. Guys, this is a horror classic for a reason. It is legitimately scary. The special effects in this movie are insane, especially for the time. Like, I think a lot of them have not been matched in the present day. It has this really creative opening where it only takes, like, one small square of the screen to, like, show you how Freddy is crafting his famous knife glove while the rest of the screen has the opening credits, which I appreciated opening credits are i find a necessary evil a lot of the time um if you're a horror fan you haven't seen this check it out this is scarier than so much so many of the movies that they make today apparently wes craven never wanted this to be a sequel he wanted a very like definitive ending to the first movie but obviously this is one of the iconic horror franchises and this made 57 million dollars off of a 1 million dollar budget and this was in 1984 so i was impressed by that Fun fact about that, I saw that as a child and had nightmares. <laughs> like, <weeks. laughs> I was terrified of that movie as a kid. So, yeah. I, um, I I totally avoided that one for most of my childhood. That's good. I As an adult watching it, it's very riveting. But as a child, I, I can imagine I'd be terrified. Got another uh, spiritual successor to a Craven movie this year, too. In a couple weeks with the new Scream. Oh, yeah, that's true. This one is also just called Scream, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, At least I it's not SCR4M <laughs> or 5M. <laughs> Isn't the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre just Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too? Well, here's the thing, guys, is that all the sequels don't mean anything, okay? These are direct <laughs> sequels to the original. So is there a statute of limitations for like when you can just start reusing movie titles? For like one of these sequels, I think I think if it was a movie made in like the '90s at the latest, and you can just bring in the nostalgia of like you're bringing in old characters, you can just reuse the name. Yeah, I like agree. like it, it, like it'd be weird if if the next Malignant was just Malignant again, but something like Halloween or you got to be rebooting a franchise to do that. You can't just like have your sequel be titled the same thing. <laughs> Fair, fair. I mean, as long as you have the rights, I guess creatively you can do anything you want. <laughs> just just five malignant movies all named malignant? <laughs> mm. Well, that would be appropriate to the title, so. Speaking of a downer, I also watched The Lost Daughter. 
this is not this is not to say it's a bad movie, but this is about a woman on vacation who encounters a family in crisis, which reminds her of her own history with her daughters. This is written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal in her directorial debut, based on the book by Elena Ferrante. I have very mixed feelings about this movie. It's I'll say this off the bat: it's a very good movie. It's very well done. Uh, it sets out to have a particular mood and effect, and it is totally successful in that. It showcases the often suffocating, crushing aspects of motherhood, uh, which is cool. You don't always get to see that depicted on film. Or I will say, if you're a person who doesn't like whining and crying from children, or you're not in the mood to watch an upsetting movie, just watch this one another time. It's very true to like how difficult it is to share the world with other people sometimes, particularly when you're watching a movie, which I appreciated. Really good performances, Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, Jesse Buckley, amongst others. There is one character in this movie, and this happens every once in a while, where every single second that they're on screen, I just cannot stand it. I'm not going to say who it is, and it's not one of the people that I named. They're all, they're all great. Uh, the movie kind of loses focus somewhere along the way, um, and I was pretty unconvinced by the ending of this, but overall, it's very well done, and a, a movie I'd really enjoy talking about, which is one of my favorite things. As far as movie news goes, the only thing that I just saw like two seconds ago is that Morbius has been moved to April 1st. Man. That means we yes. gotta sit through that trailer before every movie for another three months. Yeah, but it's your friendly neighborhood doctor, Michael Morbius, or whatever it is. At your service. <laughs> yeah, at yeah. your service. Yeah, I have no basically no, no feelings about no, he's, this. He's he's Venom, even though Venom has never been named outside of Eddie Brock and his girlfriend, wife, whatever. I'm going to have to see what other characters Sony is controlling to see what, like how they're trying to branch out in that direction. Yeah, how do you... Like, you, you, got, you got Venom Carnage, and then you're jumping to Morbius already? Like, <laughs> Well, according to our theater, he's in a Marvel icon or whatever. <laughs> Marvel legend. <laughs> Marvel legend, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I guess he is. Are you guys ready for licorice pizza? Oh, I'm ready. Oh, yeah. All right, let's do it. We're going to review licorice pizza. It's the San Fernando Valley in the early 1970s, and young Gary Valentine meets and falls in love with the older woman, Alana Kane. As they start various businesses, get into various schemes, they fall in and out and in love. This is written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Guys, what did you think of licorice pizza? Um, to put it in, in as simple words as possible, I would describe it as a two hour and 13 minute dream sequence spanning just about every emotion in at various points. It was just very well crafted very, like I said, almost dreamlike at certain parts. And, um, it was nice. It was, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Tyler, what'd you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think it was kind of a interesting, I, I don't want to say love story, because, you know, people are going to get upset with that. But, <laughs> you know, it was kind of a, a, a cute story, I guess, is that you could say. Oh, God. What are you, why are you using that word? <laughs> I'll, I'll rephrase. Uh, <laughs> it's sweet, I guess. <laughs> um, 
No, but I just like I really enjoyed this movie. I think it was kind of like it's one of those movies where like the plot itself isn't really matter. It's just kind of the interactions between the characters that flow it. I think like the closest that I could think of that I saw recently, a few years back now, is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Reminded me a lot of that, where like you know it's carried by the performances and the interactions with everyone, like all the characters, um, more so than a engaging plot line. Um, which I didn't actually like that movie that much when I first watched it, and then after rewatching it, I really liked it. And this one, I just kind of got that vibe from. Well, that's that's kind of why I describe it as as a dream in a sense where you know, there's not. I mean, there's obviously like the inter, intertwining plot thread of um, you know them falling in and out of love, but for the most part, it's almost like almost like an anthology of like what hijinks are they up to this at this point, and then what. What are they getting into next, you know? Yeah. It like much like a dream where like if you ever had like a very vivid dream where like you're in one place and this is unfolding and it's kinda zany, then you move on to the next sequence and it's totally just something off the wall, crazy in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's really like it's it doesn't follow the normal like usually the normal like thematic structures of like you know, there's a climax, like, that everything's leading up to. There kind of is, but, like, there's not, like, intertwining uh, lines. It's just kind of stuff that happens. Um, mm-hmm. There's really no, like, major, in- like, there's no antagonist or anything that really, and I, th- I think that's different, and that's the kind of type of movie it is. The first thing that I'd like to say about this movie is give Brad Cooper Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars. <laughs> Absolutely. The man made me happier in less than 10 minutes of screen time than he did for the entirety of Nightmare Alley. <laughs> and that is to say nothing against Nightmare Alley, but he knocked it out of the park in this. Uh, but generally, this is one of the most, I think, delightful movies of the year. And probably the most delightful movie that PTA has ever made. Uh, not to say the best or my favorite, but I think the most delightful and cheery. The performers all have such chemistry together, which I was very impressed by. Matt, you called it an anthology. I thought of it like a buffet of fun adventures. If, if there's one you don't like, there's another cool one that's coming. Mm-hmm. And it all has this through line of this romance. Um, I was, I don't know, Gary Valentine. Also the name of Kevin James's brother. It's <laughs> good to know. If any, anyone is familiar with, <laughs> with the King of Queens, he played Danny on the King of Queens. He played some character on Kevin Can Wait. He's going to play someone in the Sean Payton show. <laughs> yeah, he might be in, what's, Home Team, right? That's the name home of Team, yeah. yeah. What about, what yeah. about, was he in The Crew? I didn't watch enough of The Crew or whatever it was, not The Crew. I'm not sure anybody watched enough of The Crew. <laughs> but here, the character, Gary Valentine, is played by Cooper, Cooper Hoffman, son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is frequent collaborator with PTA. Uh, How do you think Cooper Hoffman did in this movie? I thought he was pretty, pretty dang good for not only his age, but just like having the, I don't know if you'd call it a stigma or like the, the fact that he is the son of one of these prolific, majorly prolific actors. I feel like he probably had a lot of pressure, not maybe not pressure, but I mean, you kind of, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, is he going to be any good or is it, or is he not, you know, like. I think he has big shoes to fill if he's trying to come up the same way that his dad did as an actor. So I think definitely a promising first 
like first movie i think was this his first movie yeah yeah so apparently he didn't even want to or wasn't considering acting until pta approached him with this script i mean if i if i was an actor and i saw the script for this movie i probably would be persuaded too yeah i him and alana Haim, i thought were both excellent i thought they both kind of took a minute to get into the role mm-hmm. um that could also just be me I just didn't enjoy the first half of the movie as much, so that just might be my my experience of it. But they ended up very excellent, very natural. Um, I I didn't feel anything too like actorly in it, which I thought was totally appropriate for the subject matter. I just want to bring up something on Cooper Hoffman. I thought it was really cool because I think PTA got some of Philip Seymour Hoffman's best work out of him. So it was really cool to see this part played by his son um, for PTA, and I thought that was really touching. Yeah, totally. Uh, we also have Sean Penn. We have Tom Waits, who I thought was Nick Nolte briefly. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's Tom th- Waits, not yeah, Nick Nolte. <laughs> it's just that voice that thought was Nick Nolte. First. I'm like, it doesn't look quite like Nick Nolte, but that's what he sounds like. Uh, we've got Benny Safdie. Harriet Sansom Harris is great as Mary Grady in this this one scene uh, as this this agent who interviews Alana. She was very funny in that. This romance between Gary and Alana, did this fly with you guys? Did you find it believable? It took me some time to really, um, I guess, process it. And I think that kind of another reason why I felt like it was almost like a dreamy type movie is because the circumstances were just un- unrealistic enough to make it make it clear clear to me anyway after thinking about it that it, it's really not an endorsement of that type of relationship so much as it's just like I don't know I, I don't think it was a gratuitous by any means so a lot of the people that are getting hung up about that I think they should still give the movie a fair chance and watch it for themselves, make their own opinion on it. Well, they might have. They might have watched it. I don't want to say. But Tyler, what did you think? I thought it was fine. I, like you said, it wasn't too gratuitous. It wasn't like sexualized, really. Um, it was just kind of like portrayed in a more of a crush way. So I thought it, I thought it wasn't as bad as people were making it out to be. Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting. I don't. I don't think the age difference had to be that large. No, me either. I think it could have been maybe we're like, and again, I don't want to rewrite the movie for PTAs, but um, maybe Gary could have been like just graduating high school or something like that. I I don't know. It it didn't like sit 100% well with me, and there was something else in this movie that didn't really sit well with me. Um, But as far as the relationship, I, I thought it was believable in the sense that you know, she's this older woman, and so she feels this this really pull to, like, be mature and to move on with her life, which I thought was this great theme throughout the movie, because I'm sure you guys have felt it at some point, and listeners, you have too, that, like, as you get older, you feel this need to, like, accomplish something. Like, you can't stay in the sort of aimless, childlike world you feel like you need to be working towards something, even if in actuality it's not a requirement of life. 
And I thought uh, Alana Haim did a, an excellent job of portraying that. Yeah, I I totally agree. I got that same that same sort of vibe from it. Um, but that before before I watched it for the second time and kind of softened on my stance on this a little bit, um, they could have still portrayed that whole those same exact themes that you're picking up on, Mike. That I also picked up on. Um, if they 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 could have bumped him up more, like make and still made him like a high schooler. Like, make him, like, a high school senior, 17 or 18. And, like, nothing would have been lost other than the controversy of, oh, it's such a big age difference. I think the way I interpret it, the reason he went with that, and I could be wrong, he he could have went for a different reason, but I kind of saw it as, like, two different coming-of-age stories. You got the kid who's actually growing up and coming into the world, and you got the like the person who's already grown up but like refuses to actually grow up and kind of having to mature and realizing from this person she's seeing maturing faster than her at such a younger age that it just kind of widens that like her view on that that's just how i took it yeah i guess it can be one of those things that you can understand even if you don't you can understand the choice even if you don't agree with it Mm-hmm. This is kind of similar to like the Tyler you mentioned Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a movie that I really like. And there was a lot of discussion around the Sharon Tate character and whether she was underwritten or not. And that was another thing where like I understood uh, Tarantino's like rationalization behind making her character the way he did. I didn't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. And that's just how artistic choice uh, goes sometimes. But I thought... It was really cool how PTA integrates elements of like the setting at the time without like having to make them a major set piece or like an obvious thing in the plot. Um, like the gas crisis, you know, that was a funny part of the movie and it was just pretty seamlessly integrated into their story. Um, the, the oil crisis with thing with the waterbeds, the cinematography, which was done by PTA and also uh, Michael Bauman. They shot it in 35. They used older lenses. And I thought the sunlight was just so, so powerful in this. Like you said, Matt, it, it really contributed to this fantasy uh, heightened mind state of being, which I thought was excellent. The music is also great. We, my favorite part, maybe the two seconds of Gordon Lightfoot that they played <laughs> in the car and then it was over. Uh, stumbling in was a good needle drop. Let me roll it. I thought Life on Mars was used better in the trailer yeah. hmm. than in the actual movie, but uh, hey, props to the trailer. I yeah, never gonna, I'm never going to complain about hearing some Life on Mars Yeah, in a movie. Yeah, uh, like I said before, I thought the second half of this was much better, which I think made me like this movie more. There have been a lot of movies this year, particularly, where... I thought the first half was much better than the second, so I come away not liking it as much, sort of due to that recency bias. But this one ended great, and I'd love to talk about the ending later. Um, I'm assuming that we're all going to be recommending that people see this movie. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think uh, I think the I don't know if the Academy will, but I definitely think it deserves some nods for for the things it did right. Yeah, I, I think it will get definitely some things. Uh, what remains to be seen, we'll see in February. Are you guys ready to move to spoilers? Yes. Oh, yeah. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, 
Please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. So we have Gary and Alana who meet while she is working at a school as a photographer's assistant. Apparently this was like a real thing that PTA witnessed. He saw a younger man hitting on this photographer's assistant and that was sort of like the germ of his idea for this movie. They meet for dinner and they have this I'm not going to forget you and you're not going to forget me speech which it sort of set this melancholy tone for me, which I thought that later they were going to have to separate, but they would still cherish the memory, you know, that kind of romance story. And, you know, we'll talk about the end, but I, I was, I'm very pleased that this movie is a movie about happiness as opposed to a movie that is about like just having to appreciate the time that you got kind of thing. Hmm. Definitely agree. Yeah, we have we have the showbiz thing. So Gary is a young actor. He goes to a show in New York where he makes an inappropriate joke on TV. He whacks the star with the pillow. And so he's out of showbiz at that at that point, which I, I really liked because I feel like every movie where somebody is a performer, it's all about like their burning need to like be a star and they'll stop at nothing and they're so depressed if something goes wrong. And in this one, the performing just like ends and like there's no big deal made of it. And I really love that. You don't usually see that. Do you think that that showbiz was just one of his like get rich quick schemes? Like he just kind of got into it with that intention? I don't know. He said he'd always been a song and dance man. However, at the same time, I do think Gary was a bit of a BSer. Yeah. Yeah. And a bit of sure. a, a player. And so it makes me question the the future of his and Alana's relationship. But, you know, that's that's post end of the movie. So, yeah. Hey. Uh, totally we pizza, too. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually called soggy bottom this time. <laughs> if you if you eat too much licorice pizza, you'll get a soggy bottom. We have Lance, who is one of Gary's co-stars, fellow actors, played by Skylar Gazondo, who dates Alana. Uh, I thought he was like he had some charm in this. They usually make him play like the wimpy kid who's such a dork and he's pathetic and everything. He had some some real charisma in this, which I thought was cool. Um, and then their breakup is so funny that Alana's father offers him to, to give the prayer at the meal. And he's like, no, I'm a practice, practicing atheist, even though he was born Jewish, so I'm not going to do it. And that's how they broke up. We have Gary, who's getting into waterbeds. Uh, quite the close-up on, on this person in the waterbed store. Uh, and also Leonardo DiCaprio's father in that in that waterbed store. But he goes to a teen expo where he has a waterbed business called Soggy Bottom. If you guys remember, Soggy Bottom was like the original reported title of this. We have a cameo of John C. Riley as Fred Gwynn, who played Herman Munster. I This was like the briefest cameo I think I've ever seen in a movie ever. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen the Darjeeling Limited? No. Mm, no. So that's a Wes Anderson movie. And there's one part in it where he's just he's roving over the cars in a train. And I was watching this, and in one of the cars you just see Natalie Portman sitting there. And she never says a word. And I could be wrong, 
pretty sure it was Natalie Portman, and then she just never shows up again. <laughs> I'll have to watch this now. I'll I'll be I'll be able to tell you if it's Natalie Portman or not. Yeah. So this John C. Riley cameo was the second shortest that I've ever seen. He did have a line. So <laughs> he did have uh, a yeah, line. He's like he's like I am I am Herman Munster, right? Yeah. <laughs> I also thought the the Sonny and Cher joke was funny. They're like, yeah. "Oh, they got Sonny and Cher." He's like, "Just Cher, no Sonny." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, goes to that kind of goes to show how sharply written some of the lines in this movie really were. Yeah, and then Gary is randomly arrested for murder. <laughs> I'm assuming he just matched the suspect's description, um, but it starts off this motif where when he gets arrested. Alana like bolts to the police station to find him and it starts off this running motif like the running is so it's so youthful and energetic and full of life and I think it's also sort of like this this urgency of of their love for each other right because during the movie they're always holding back the feelings that they have for each other so I think the running was kind of this physical expression of this urgency and need that they felt for each other. And we see it a couple more times. How'd you guys like the waterbed opening day scene where Alana is oddly like in her underwear or a bikini as everybody else is just playing on waterbeds. If you're an adult, are you buying a waterbed from this store? (laughs) I I don't think I am. (laughs) No, I'd be calling the cops on that store, to be honest with you. <laughs> Why does he just own a storefront <laughs> that he uses multiple times? I, I was wondering the same, th- especially later during the pinball thing where he's like, yeah, I own this. So like, <laughs> but again, how easy that, was it to start a business? <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of why I, I, I view it as like a dream sequence. Like, who knows, maybe this stuff is all not even, you know, some of the stuff is just so unrealistic if you if you step back and think about it no this was real stuff that happened this was real stuff that that happened to pta's friend uh gary getzman who's a producer now he he opened multiple businesses like these oh yeah at 15 i don't know at 15 but was his mother in real estate yeah the mother really comes and goes (laughs) in this one and (laughs) When I say comes and goes, I mean in that order. She doesn't come back after a certain point. There's no parents in this movie. Charlie Day must be upset. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, The waterbed business fails. So Alana turns to acting. She has this audition with Jack Holden, who is played by Sean Penn, who is based on William Holden, who is a major, major uh, movie and TV star, Sunset Boulevard, Network, a ton of other stuff. And he's a little incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> they go to a restaurant. I love this. This is probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Honestly. Yeah, Nick Nick Nolte was there, <laughs> disguised as Tom Waits. It was the Blue Chip sequel. Uh, Gary and Alana have this sort of like showdown where they're this is the point where they're broken up This is after the waterbed where he kind of like betrayed her for another girl And they have this stare down and then Jack takes Alana on the back of his motorcycle He is inebriated and she falls off the back 
And again, we get this this mirror of this running motif where as soon as Gary sees Alana go down, he is sprinting towards her to see if it's okay, right? It's this physical expression uh, of the care that he has for her. They still have a waterbed to deliver, guys, though. (laughs) And they deliver it to a fictionalized, I'll say fictionalized version of John Peters, who was a producer, former hairdresser. He produced Caddyshack, an American werewolf in London, Flashdance, which is a movie that is close to my heart, and a ton of other things that you love. He is portrayed by Brad Cooper. Um, apparently, none of the young actors knew that Brad Cooper was going to be in this as John Peters. So, hmm. like, when he walked out in costume, that was their first time seeing him. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. I, and actually, I got I lied. That this is actually my favorite sequence of the movie. I by and far this is the yeah. best thing in the movie. I agree. Yeah. When he goes, <laughs> my, my only problem is I love Tail too much. And then they have a little bit of conversation. He goes back to it, he's like, I love it so much, it's gonna kill me one day. <laughs> oh, the line where he's like, I'll, I'll you know how much, oh, I love when he's like, you know how much tail I get? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> But he, he just, yeah, Brad Cooper just plays that part just so manically and brilliantly. It's just... Just one of the most convincing psychopaths. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's worth the hour and a half or so of the movie that you have to watch to get to it. If nothing, if you get nothing else from this movie, if you just witness that sequence. Yeah. It, it, and then... <laughs> He makes them promise not to mess up his house or he's going to choke out his, like, eight-year-old brother. <laughs> but they do mess up his house. They're filling the waterbed. They take the hose out. They leave it on his floor. They drive the truck. Um, and then he, like, they run back into John Peters on the way. He makes them drop him off to get gas. I, I just want to point out just this, just him sprinting up to the truck, which is so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, PTA got permission from the real John Peters to like make this crazy character based on him, on the condition that his favorite pickup line be used, which which is. Hey, do you like peanut butter sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. That was excellent. I. One of the best scenes of the entire year was just everything with Brad Cooper in it. Mm-hmm. So they I, go I to to- smash. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I totally agree with you though that he was more captivating in this, what twenty minute sequence at most. Less than ten. You think less than ten? I, I felt think like this is less long, than ten minutes. I felt like it was more than that, but either way, maybe um, ten minutes. This this whole sequence was better than the two and a half hours that was Nightmare Alley. Yeah, at least as I, far as Brad Cooper is concerned. Perhaps we can talk about that another time. Uh, but it's all happy here today. Uh, they they mess up his car. Gary smashes the windshield, and then they ha- there's this like cool action sequence where they the big truck, the moving truck, runs out of gas, and Alana has to drive the truck like backwards down this giant hill and make it to a certain point so that they can go get gas. That was such an impressive scene. Apparently, Alana Heim just learned how to drive a truck so that she could do that scene, and hmm. I, I couldn't have been more convinced she pulled it off. However, this leads to Alana reassessing things, and this goes into the maturity thing. She sees 
one who they had this this truck rolling down a hill where they could have gotten killed and she sees Gary kind of uh, being blasé about it and acting a little immature. So she decides that she's going to go work for Joel Wax, who is a real councilman, excuse me, in the area at that time in an effort to be more more serious and adult. Uh, Gary shoots the promos for Joel Wax. Do you guys know who the actual promos for Joel Wax were shot by? I don't. Famous director. Hmm. Silence of the Lambs. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jonathan Demme. Really? Huh. Yeah. Wow. That's a cool wow. fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where'd unless, you find that one? Unless my research lied to me, which I, it, it's always possible. <laughs> there were facts, I believe, for many years that turned out not to be true. Well, how many, uh, how many of our listeners are going to fact check us anyway? Well, now they are. <laughs> shouldn't have said anything yep that's true now they're definitely just searching yeah apparently shot by jonathan demi which i thought was really cool uh, gary starts a pinball business and this leads to the fight scene between gary and alana which i had to like do some mental gymnastics to like understand what both of their like wants and needs were during this scene she is like kind of attacking him for being immature and all this stuff i don't know if this was an effort to like distance herself from him or to like get him to mature a little bit more uh, wh- what do you guys think that scene was all about i i took it as she was trying to distance her, uh, herself from him i think alana was trying to like with the whole working for um wax she even said like i'm a politician like she's kind of trying to put that behind her even though she knows like she she likes um gary but that's how I took it, like, you know, like, I'm cooler than you, like, now I have a real job, like, a real, like, important purpose. Yeah, and then and then it's telling, like, how immediately after she does that, uh, what, what was the last line she said? Was it the politician line, or was it the I'm cooler than you line? I can't remember. I think it was I'm cooler than you, and then he says you're old. Oh, uh, well, yeah, so basically, it's after that point, it's funny how... Once she realizes how she probably she might have pushed him a little farther than she wanted to, how she immediately flips back to like come, you know come back come back, and realizes it's a bit too late. So I yeah, think that was kind it, of like it's immediate in that line where she's like, "I'll drive you," like, yeah. "Okay, I'll drive you to the like the the meeting." She was just making fun of him for like taking like making fun of who he was for trying to do this, and then immediately flipping back to, "Well, I'll bring you to the." I thought that scene was pretty impactful, honestly, because, I mean, I hope I'm not the only person that's ever been, like, having an argument with someone, then you say accidentally say something that goes too far, and then you're immediately trying to backpedal it happens. And, and make up for it, and then you realize that you did, you know, more damage than you meant to. Yeah, sometimes I accidentally let slip that they're a stupid, incompetent little baby, and then I just, just realize uh, right that. In, no, incompetent too... little baby idiot. Yeah, incompetent <laughs> little baby idiot. Yeah, well, that's different because there's no coming back from that. That's so true. you just need to accept fate at that point. <laughs> then, then you need to hire an assassin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gary, Gary wears sneakers with his suit. In this, which I very much appreciated, I am a sneaker fan. I don't ever want to wear any other type of shoe except for sneakers. I agree with that. <laughs> I cannot. I used to have a job 
where my whole job was running around a big store the whole time, and they wouldn't let us wear sneakers. And to this day, I do not understand that, and my feet were hurting the entire time. Have you ever I been mean, in a store and been like, ah, oh, these employees aren't nicely enough dressed for my grocery needs? <laughs> um, I'm not going to say where this was, but it's uh, not, they not know. the highest class store I've, I've ever been to. Yeah, I mean, if it's... If... Um, it's some kind of class, though, right? So they say. Uh, no comment. I'm I'm just gonna cut myself off before I say something worse. <laughs> well, I, I'm gonna say I I didn't have a good experience with that store either, so I feel you. Okay, I'm glad. I had a a we have a dinner scene. So what happens is Alana's working late. We have Joel Wax who invites her out for a drink. And when she gets there, of course, she's excited. She seems like this is going to be a new adult direction for her. And when she gets there, we have Wax with another man named Matthew, who is played by Joseph Cross, who is another person who just knocked it out of the park in this movie. Can't give him enough props. And I want to say Benny Safdie playing Joel Wax showed such like a consistent, well-put-together demeanor even in the face of like moments when you knew that he wanted to break down. And I was very impressed by that. He had a very good performance. Yeah. Every performance, especially with like the small parts that these big actors were still playing. Like I feel like PTA just got the most out of every actor that was in this movie, no matter what the role was. Definitely. Even the criminal in the police station who comes out and looks at Gary and goes, no, that's not him. And <laughs> yeah. just like is immediately whisked away. I think that's just kind of one of PTA's signatures, though. It's like it's the smallest part, so he'll get everything out of that. Like, uh, yeah. He just really is really good at that. Little Bill's wife in Boogie Nights. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> yeah. about that. I have, a, I have a fun fact about her, which I was interested in. I saw that on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this really emotional scene between Wax and Matthew, you learn that them they are in a relationship. Uh, Matthew wants the relationship to be more public, but uh, Joel Wax thinks that it will hurt his political career. And so he asks Alana to go home with Matthew as you know his fake girlfriend. And Joseph Cross and Alana Haim have this really sweet, touching moment, which I thought was one of the best of the movie that, you know, even though people are a pain in the butt, you still love them and all that kind of stuff, which sometimes I, I admit is a trope in movies that like makes me sick a lot of the time. Um, but in, in this one, I didn't mind it. I liked it. Yeah, I thought it kind of did. A, oh, sorry. Um, no, I thought ahead. it kind of did interesting, like, you know, like he's saying, like, even though like this love is forbidden, like, I, I, like I still love him. And I thought that really kind of mirrored Alana and Gary. You know, the age thing, it's its not right, but, like, she still feels that way. So I thought that was an interesting um, parallel. Yeah. Uh, yeah the sweet mo. this is where Alana kind of, like, I don't know if she realizes that she loves Gary or realizes that it's, like, okay to love Gary. But either way, we have this culmination of the running. Gary has gone to her place of work to see if she's there. She goes to his pinball place to see if he's there. And... There's something I want to talk about in a minute as far as this, but I'm like, if this were today, that would be a, a text or a call. Be like, where are <laughs> it's you? It's true. <laughs> yeah. 
which is I, I want to have this conversation after we finish up with this segment about about technology in the movies. But that was such a beautiful moment. They're running to each other again. It's this it's this such this vitality, um, this throwing caution to the wind thing just to be happy. And then we have the ending where it's just Gary and Alana together. And I thought this was so different from what we often get. I feel like a lot of the times nowadays there's like a melancholy but sweet ending but like this was all about happiness and just about the romance and it ends with that and i i thought that was perfect i totally agree i mean even the marketing campaign was focused on that like who says good movies have to be sad (laughs) (laughs) oh did they say that yeah that was like the commercials on tv was like that was how they're narrated uh, hmm. You know what? I have to agree with that. You don't have to be sad to get acclaim. You can be funny and get acclaim. Humor I agree with not that. not nearly as acclaimed as it should be. Um, yeah, totally. Final thoughts on licorice pizza? Um, I mean, there's not a whole lot more I want. I could possibly say now that we haven't already touched on. It's just such a very, it's a very unique, very um, sort of, I keep going. I keep going back to dreamy, like like it's a very dreamy, almost escape escapist type movie. Like I, I went into that movie, I was fully immersed. I felt like I had escaped from reality for two hours and thirteen minutes, and it was a nice reprieve from from the the world right now, honestly. And I think I I, I loved it, and I totally recommend it. Matt, you have had the mamas and the papas stuck in your head, I guess, since you saw this movie, California Dreamin'. Oh, yeah. Another good one that could have been on the soundtrack. All right, we are going to take a short break, and we will be back talking everything Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm Dawn. And I'm Cole. And Scottish Murders is a true crime podcast dedicated to people from or living in Scotland. Just like anywhere else in the world, these murders can be truly horrific and shocking. And we want to shine more light upon them. Join us every two weeks on Scottish Murders, where we'll bring you cases both solved and unsolved, giving you an insight into the other side of Bonnie Scotland. Find us wherever you stream your podcasts, as well as on social media. Join Join us there. there. Bye. All right, we're back to discuss the career of Paul Thomas Anderson. Originally, guys, I thought that we would do a ranking of his movies, but as I rewatched and I thought about the different kinds of movies that he's made, I'm just not really interested in that. His movies are so unique and different from each other that I just don't know if I can rank Licorice Pizza as opposed to There Will Be Blood as opposed to Heart Eight. And, you know, I... I really love so many of his movies. There's only one that I am not a fan of, and we will get there. But we're just going to go through a timeline. We're going to go through his career, start to finish. And the first one, actually, before we start, let's just give general thoughts. What do you think of when you think of Paul Thomas Anderson? Tyler, let's start with you. So I think of, you know, I, I kind of think of his casts. You know, he's got Daniel Day-Lewis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, 
as his like he's got a main kind of like you know like a Wes Anderson style like he uses the same characters but I think it's it's incredible that he can make every movie even with the same actors he can make it unique um so I think he's really like it's hard to describe him I I you know after rewatching some of his movies I I wasn't like a huge I liked his movies but I I wasn't like a huge fan and just rewatching some of his movies I forgot how great his movies are and like I, I think he, I just he just kind of rose in my opinion like that like I just never I took him for granted kind of but like he's an incredible filmmaker. Matt, for me it's really on top of what Tyler said. It, a lot of it is with him is the attention to detail he puts into all his movies, which um, I believe you were saying Mike uh, off air here how. All of his movies are like period pieces, more or less. Like there, he hasn't really made too much that's been cast in like a modern time. And I really like that when he goes to these different time periods, he it almost looks like he meticulously crafts every detail to make it as immersive as possible in the setting, and really give the actor, especially his frequent collaborators, a space to really perform in and just sort of dissolve into you know sort of not dissolve um sort of sort of just sort of what's the word I'm looking for uh, fall I guess fall into the role mm-hmm. where, you, where you know eventually you stop seeing the actors and you start seeing the characters and that's just as much to do with the massive talent that he manages to cast in his movies, as well as the set designs, all the little details, the writing. Um, it's just so many moving parts to it. It just feels so immersive, regardless of when or what takes place in his movies. Yeah, uh, to your point about the historical and being immersed in it and feeling the characters is that one thing that I love that he does is uh, when he's doing a period piece, which he most often does, he will provide real life events to these fictional characters, but it won't be like the historical event, like slaps them in the face with how much it affects them. And to me, that makes the characters so much real. Cause that's how we experience a lot of events is that they happen and we know about them and maybe we're affected a little bit. But it doesn't always affect our daily lives like right away or all that much. And that happens with a lot of his characters. And I think that's really cool. Tyler, like you said, the unique characters, the dialogue is always entertaining. I find him to be like one of the most entertaining intellectuals where like his movies are such fun watches. But then you can dig so much deeper if you want to do that. We talked about that too with Ridley Scott. Um he likes to visit times and places and people that like really seem glamorous and likes to show you the underbelly of that. And he does very well at both parts, right? The glitz and the glam. He, he can be a very, very fun director, but also just what's really going on underneath somebody's heart, often a dark heart. And he is a director that is patient but never wastes time is how I think of it is his movies do not always move along at breakneck speed. But I, I don't know if there's a lot of time wasting. Maybe in, may, well, you guys may have your own opinions, but to this point of period pieces, 
He's only done a couple that are set in the times in which they were made. I have Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia, I believe Heart Eight is set in the time that it was that it was made. Um, but if if you're gonna if you guys can allow me this digression, I keep thinking about technology in the movies, and I just framed it around like the Academy and Best Picture nominees. Is that it just seems like we're very slow to embrace movies that incorporate our everyday use of technology, which I find interesting. Like here are a lot of the best picture nominees just of the past couple of years that are all set in the past. Mank, Minari, Judas and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Ford v. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Green Book, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, which, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Hollywood is specifically staying away from technology movies, and obviously, you know, movies have always thrived on telling stories of the past. But it's just so interesting when you see a movie this year like Don't Look Up, which really just dives head first without even sticking its arms out into like our everyday lives with the internet and all this stuff. How many movies like are not doing that, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like it's usually either a period piece or like a futuristic sci-fi deal that they that the Academy and people seem to be gravitating towards more Hmm. yeah all right so thank you for allowing me that now let's get to pta his first film this is hard eight from 1996 this is based on pta's earlier short film cigarettes and coffee this is about a young man down in his luck who meets a gambler who becomes his mentor uh neither of you have seen this movie correct correct yes I really like this movie. I think it is underrated. It's PTA's least well-known film, as many debuts are for a lot of directors, but I've watched it multiple times, and there are a few scenes in there that I find riveting every single time. That includes anytime Philip Baker Hall speaks. He plays the mentor. The phone call between him and John C. Riley. Uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman short scene in this, I've watched 9 billion times. He only appears very briefly, but it's so oddly watchable, even though his dialogue doesn't make much sense at all. He has this this mullet. He's going crazy. Go watch Hard 8. It's great. But if you're not going to, at the very least, go YouTube Philip Seymour Hoffman's scene in Hard 8, and it is indicative of why he's so magnetic as a movie star. You will not be disappointed. Uh, I think this is a good intro to a conflict that occurs throughout PTA's work a lot and a lot of other movies. And that's like characters who are struggling with how much to do for other people's happiness versus their own. There's a lot of self-sacrificing and I feel this draw to do something for this other character. Um, But that's going to hurt me and I also want what I want. And I find that to be a motif throughout his throughout his career this for his first movie he's got quite the cast philip baker hall john c Riley, gwyneth paltrow uh sam jackson is in this this was originally titled sydney which is the philip baker's hall character name apparently <laughs> the studio and he had a lot of battle with the studio apparently the studio thought people would think it was about australia if they titled it sydney <laughs> is there anyone more out of touch than studio executives <laughs> I, I I don't know I I've never been in the position. 
I guess I don't. They they weren't gonna allow a trailer for this, or they yeah. would have messed up and they would have made a trailer that was just a, a tourist ad for for <laughs> Australia. Come see Sydney. Uh, PTA had very little control over this over the cut. The studio recut it and gave it the new title, Hard Eight, uh, which seemed to be an incredibly frustrating experience. For Anderson and inform some of the practices that he did in his later films. But go check out Hard Eight. I like it a lot. In 1997, we get Boogie Nights. This is currently available on Showtime. This is about the golden age of pornography in the late 1970s. Eddie Adams becomes Dirk Diggler, new porn star, superstar, working for Jack Horner, who's played by Burt Reynolds, who I really like in this movie, but apparently he regretted taking this role after seeing an early cut of the film. He turned down this role several times. Apparently he didn't get along with PTA. You know, I you never know if these things are true, but that is what I've read. <laughs> apparently he like researched the role by visiting porn sets and wanted to wear rubber gloves and take a shower after. <laughs> I think Have that's you... a fair thing after visiting a porn set. How do you guys feel about Boogie Nights? I really enjoyed Boogie Nights. Um, it, it's crazy that that's only his second movie because it's really, really well done. I think it's one of his best. Um, it takes a legendary filmmaker to get a good movie with Mark Wahlberg's. <laughs> In a very early Mark Wahlberg, too. Very early Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's, it's actually been quite a while since I've seen that seen it. I just remember really liking it when I saw it. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to elaborate on it right now. Oh, I could go. I could go on so much about this movie. I won't. But this is one of the best movies about how mood and eras change without much warning or any like clear demarcation about it. Right. This the first half is so bright and cheery. There's so much energy. It's so fun. And then there's just this transition that you can feel the energy slowly draining out until it's very dark and dour. And I really like that about it. This is one of those movies where you feel that like a lot of time has passed. You know, the, the years move on. Um, I know it's a very like vague type of movie that I'm talking about, but I mean, movies like Forrest Gump, or if you're a Mr. Holland's Opus fan, where like in a span of two, they're usually like two and a half hours, you just feel like you've spent a lot of years with these characters. And I always appreciate that. Oh, this might be the most fun of PTA's films. It hits you like a ton of bricks when there's the downer second half, particularly when Little Bill has his moment. Uh, this movie is so funny. All the performers like Licorice Pizza have so much chemistry. PTA has said himself that this movie is largely about like finding a family, and I definitely felt that in all the performances, uh, despite the subject matter, which some people may turn their noses up at. Uh, apparently, Leonardo DiCaprio was originally offered the role of Dirk Diggler, but turned it down due to scheduling with Titanic. Uh, how do you guys think that would have been? You think he would have fit Dirk Diggler well? I think he could have pulled it off. I, I don't think he had any problem. I just wonder like what the career trajectory would have been from there had he not yeah. started in Titanic and instead was in Boogie Nights. We'd be seeing Uncharted starring Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Tom Leonardo DiCaprio with a mustache. <laughs> What's the line he uses in the trailer? He's like, uh, wait until you can grow one. Yeah, like once yeah. puberty hits you, you can grow your own. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm good. I don't. I don't need one of those. Or the, you know, or the, the scene, happening. 
with Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, the scene, like you mentioned, where like it all goes downhill, the Little Bill scene. I just think that's such an incredible. Like it's one take, one shot. It, it reminds me of like Scorsese, almost, and just that you follow him through. Very isolated on William H Macy. Yeah. But he's in the middle of a party, and I just think that's such a well done shot that like every time I watch it, like I just captivated by that and just how it ends is just wild. Yeah, a few movies really pull off that transition. Goodfellas is one. Um, Requiem for a Dream pulls that off. I I love Requiem for a Dream. I know everybody kind of doesn't like it. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people don't because it's so depressing and and dour. But I really love that movie. Um, I think we're getting a new Aronofsky next year. And I don't mean the Will Smith slash Crims Hemsworth (laughs) adventure series. I think we're getting a new movie. Uh, we will be talking about anticipated movies in the near future here. Is Apparently, it Jared Leto as well? Uh, I, I don't know about that. Let's let's save him for the Morbius episode. <laughs> Apparently at the rap party for this, uh, Nina Hartley, who plays Little Bill's wife, who is a porn star who constantly cheats on him. She is a real porn star. Apparently she gave everybody copies of her porn films, which I'm like... Is that like an author giving you a copy of their book as a gift? Is, like, I, is I that think it's a much weirder, weirder version. Of that. <laughs> How do you that's, accept that gift? That's what I want to know. That's oh, like thank in, you. That's like if if you're a person who went to college, you may have had a professor who made you buy their book, and it just never sat right with me. <laughs> I, I gotta buy so, your book. So then you go back and you give them a copy of your newest porno. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you make them pay for it. Yeah, you got, they got to pay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, f- a few actors seem to have complicated relationships to this movie. Heather Graham, who plays Roller Girl. Um, this seems to maybe have hurt her career a little bit. I like Heather Graham a lot. Uh, Mark Wahlberg maybe seems to feel conflicted. And Burt Reynolds definitely... Uh, I don't think was a huge fan of this movie. He never worked with PTA again, which is, you know, this is a director who a lot of people work with again and again and again. But then in 1999, maybe the best movie year ever, we get Magnolia. I don't even know how to sum this one up. Uh, This is an incredibly large ensemble featuring a dying TV producer, a cop, a traumatized addict, a quiz show genius, former quiz show genius, a quiz show TV host, amongst others, Tom Cruise, who is playing a man who teaches other men how to be misogynistic pickup artists. Uh, this is Magnolia. I'll be first and foremost to say, I think this is my favorite of his films. Hmm. It's definitely messy and not everything in it works, but the stuff that does work is my favorite stuff that he's ever done. How do you guys feel about Magnolia? I think it's impressive that like there's just some things that are messy and doesn't work when you're working with a cast that large and you got so many storylines. Um, he's still relatively new at this point, three movies in, and yet it's still this incredible movie. And I think like, I mean, the actor who car- who rises above everyone else in it, Tom Cruise. You know, like he's so different from that action star that Tom Cruise, like the persona he has of this action star such a wildly different thing i think it's his best performance ever um but it's so it's such an incredible um 
performance from him that you just don't see, especially nowadays from him. I did not see it. Um, I'm I am not a Tom Cruise guy though. So as not a Tom Cruise guy, would you still recommend this movie to me? I can't I comprehend the mind of somebody who's not a Tom Cruise guy, so yes. I mean, even if you absolutely hate Tom Cruise, I think you should. He does play like a, a really reprehensible character in this, um, but like he like his charm shows through. So mm. I think even if you don't like him, it's, it's worth seeing this performance. I mean, you're gonna get a Tom Cruise that you don't like, like as a person. Hmm. Um, I, yeah, so I I guess it can't get any worse. My opinion of him can't get any lower. So, oh, I, I think he's incredible. But uh, this movie is deeply as explores the relationships between children and their parents in in various modes. Things about fate, mistakes made, forgiveness, uh, whether there can be reconciliation between certain people and certain things, and it rains frogs. Uh, when Julianne Moore, and I hate to say this, is the least engaging part of your movie, you know you've got something. I was, I was never, never <laughs> a, a fan. of success. Yeah, never a fan of that part. I love everything between John C. Riley and Melora Walters. They have my favorite movie kiss ever. Uh, I could watch Tom Cruise as Frank T.J. Mackey all day long. As reprehensible as it is, I, there's something about it. Yeah. In, in this year, Tom Cruise did Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. What a year. <laughs> Just the two like least Cruzian roles that there've ever been. I still find I, I always find it so odd that Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick's last film. <laughs> I know AI was kind of like partly, but uh, Eyes Wide we Shut we, I would love to talk about that one day. Magnolia is, is moving, it's funny, it's just got so much in it. Matt, if you have a spare three hours, then watch Magnolia. Wait, so this is the movie that he wanted to make that was shorter than Boogie Nights? He wanted to make a and shorter still film three hours? after Boogie Nights. Um, I, I forgot how long Boogie Nights was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Covers a lot of years. Um, but apparently things just grew and grew and grew. And, you know, this is an incredibly long movie. This has an incredible trailer that, like, doesn't give anything away. It's, like, all the characters introducing themselves, which I really love. I wish more movies would do that. And apparently PTA offered the role to Tom Cruise on the set of Eyes Wide Shut. I just I can't oh. imagine being in the mind of Tom Cruise during, during that year. Was he in love with Katie Holmes by that point? Or was uh, that I think that was soon? a little bit after. I could have my timeline off, but I think that was too soon. Okay. Yeah, because he was still with Nicole Kidman at that point. Oh, true, true. Yeah. So, shows how much I know about Tom Cruise. Oh, that's we're going to have to do an five episodes on Cruz's career just on days of thunder alone yeah cold trickle oh uh, what what was the one that i did see with him that i liked was it the one with him and emily blunt oh Wasn't days that... yeah oh live die repeat or whatever yeah. edge of Lived... tomorrow edge of tomorrow. tomorrow that's what it was i was <laughs> thinking of the, the old title yeah live die repeat yeah. i did i did <laughs> or, like yeah, that other one. way around it's switch titles <laughs> yeah well, PTA does take a turn after Magnolia. So as he heads into the 21st century, we get Punch Drunk Love in 2002. This is currently on HBO Max, if you're interested, and you should be. This is about, um, I tried to, I struggled to find an adjective, an unstable man, would you say? Uh, who that, deals, yeah? Eh, that makes me look bad, because I'm gonna, you'll see in a minute. <laughs> well, I don't, 
I'm, I won't ask you if you've ever beaten up a bathroom, but this is about an unstable man who deals with his overbearing family and a phone sex scheme while falling in love. What do you guys think about punch drunk love? So actually, punch drunk love is. I mean, that's still one of my favorite PTA movies. I I love this movie. I watched it again. And I I still like it. Um, as someone who suffers from social anxiety, I think they really captured that feeling well. I mean, the bit fits of rage. I mean, like I don't. I've never beaten up a public bathroom. So <laughs> but just like how uncomfortable he is in these just regular social situations, I don't see that a lot portrayed well. And I think Adam Sandler really knocked it out of the park with that. And it just, like, this movie feels like a fever dream. Like, it just opens with, you have no idea what's going on. Car, The car just <laughs> explodes into the air. A piano's thrown on the street. Like, it's just, the like, the strangest movie. But I love it. Um, it's It really, like, I don't know if I was supposed to feel this, but it really makes me, like, anxious just as it goes through. Like, yeah. almost like how Uncut Gems made you feel. Like, you're just, like, like so much is happening. You're, like... Mm. Things are happening at random. Yeah, you get these random swaths of color that are just morphing <laughs> yeah. and shifting out of yeah. Matt, have you seen this? I I actually haven't. Um, I wanted to watch it going into this episode, but when I typically, I didn't realize it was on HBO Max. When yeah, I typically look for to see where things are streaming, I go on IMDb, and it'll say like, "Oh, stream now on Netflix, stream now on HBO." This one it says. Watch on Pongolo next, <laughs> which is a prime it's on video HBO channel. Max. <laughs> yeah, I realize it's on HBO Max, but oh, okay. I, I, I didn't I didn't figure that out until I yeah. read the show notes here. So, so I was a little disappointed. I'm a little disappointed about that, um, especially yeah. with how you guys have been talking about it. it. Definitely sounds like something that would be in my wheelhouse. Yeah, this I is, definitely um, recommend it. I do too. This is a really beautiful movie. I think this is the. This is probably the first time that I saw Sandler in a serious capacity, and he kills it, and I want him to do so much more serious stuff. Not that I don't love his comedies, but he's so good when he turns it on. Tyler, it's funny. I was thinking the same thing as you. Considering how much chaos is in this movie at one time, it's almost like a precursor to Uncut Gems, yeah. uh, which we got only two years ago. Just uh, That one's on Netflix. Go check out Uncut Gems if you haven't. I freaking love that movie mm-hmm. um emily watson is really good as lena even though i would say lena is not the strongest character in the world not the strongest character pta has ever written this is a, <clears throat> clearly a movie that's about barry and sort of his, uh, his take on the world the silhouette scene in hawaii when they're embracing is one of the coolest and romantic most romantic i have ever seen it's it's so wonderful and this is just a really nice 90 minutes so yeah, he, very he did a- accomplish his uh, goal of making it shorter. Um, PTA, I'll th- get- oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think this is really just like one of the things that I feel like he just gets everything out of every actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman has a very small part in this movie, and yet he kills it. Like, he absolutely is incredible. And in, in the brief, he's like you said earlier in Heart 8, um, his same here like just the the confrontation between him and barry are just incredible like i loved watching it Mm. absolutely apparently the four blonde brothers who attack him in the truck are real brothers yeah paul also several of the sisters are actually sisters i believe several of his sisters are actual sisters wow so pta just loves putting family members (laughs) and laying each other's family members yeah his kids were in licorice pizza 
And uh, Maya Rudolph was in Licorice Pizza. She was also in the Inherent the, Vice. We'll the entire Haim family. Yeah, the entire fa- Haim family. Played. Yeah. <laughs> the Kane family. <laughs> yeah, the Kane family. Well, after that, he takes a major, major turn. I would say almost unrecognizable from previous projects. And that's There Will Be Blood in 2007. This is mm-hmm. on Netflix. This is based uh, on part of the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. And basically in the early 20th century, an oil man played by Daniel Day-Lewis will stop at nothing to feed his endless ambition. That, that's all I will uh, synopsize this as. What do you guys think of There Will Be Blood? So this one I did see. Um, I actually watched it over the weekend. And, I mean, it. you're right. It's very different from a lot of the stuff we've talked about so far. What, the thing that always strikes about this movie is just how visceral some of the action is not like not like visceral like overly gory but i mean there's some gnarly parts like just that opening scene where he's falling into the tunnel yeah and he breaks his leg like that was just absolutely gruesome without having i mean it says there will be blood but there's really not an excessive amount of blood (laughs) in this movie there will be a bit of blood there will be a little bit (laughs) just a little bit of blood and and like but it's just a very visceral experience like it make like every every scene especially like the scenes where people are getting hurt are just very like it made me made, it's it goes into like how his attention to detail makes everything so immersive hmm. um like you felt every scene um and and it also just carefully portrays this like this um, what's his name? Daniel Day Lewis's character, his Daniel sort of descent Plainview. into madness. Daniel Plainview, yeah. Um, you know, you know the descent into madness. Um, I I I really enjoyed it. And that last scene, I mean that the last scene where he's confronting Paul Dano's character. I I'm forgot his name too, but um, I mean there's a reason that one's as iconic as it is. It's just so well acted, so well crafted well written that 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 last speech at the end just it's so good yeah tyler what about you i i think i mean i I echo a lot of what matt was saying but i think just just what i want to bring up from this movie is just there's few performances like daniel day lewis is in this movie where just every time he's on scene every time he's in a scene he just carries it like he's got this like every he throws himself into everything and i think that's just daniel day lewis as an actor but in this it really shows um like just thinking about like i I thought about this before and i was thinking about again rewatching it like how many actors could pull off the i drink your milkshake scene like just picture Mm -hmm. the dialogue from that and how many wouldn't make it the most ridiculous scene imaginable like the whole like he's like (laughs) (laughs) slurping sound and yeah he does that so menacingly and it's just incredible, like, what he does throughout the movie. Like, every scene is just, he's got this dominating, like, um, like, static, I don't know what the, what's the word I'm looking for, like. Demeanor? Demeanor, yes, that's, that works. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This is, like, a brand new style uh, for PTA. It's incredibly well done. It's always interesting, even when there isn't a ton going on. Uh, I will say the first time I watched this, I wasn't as big a fan, but uh, upon rewatches, it's it's definitely much more rewarding. 
has such a, a fascinating conflict between Daniel Playview and Eli Sunday, who Paul Dano plays, who is a local preacher, who may be a false prophet. Uh, their their power struggle is a great through line, even though it doesn't like consume the whole movie. Um, Daniel is a character that rewards doing some mental homework. The more I think about it, the more interpretations I make. If I watch this again, I'm sure I'd have a totally different interpretation. Matt, you mentioned the beginning scene where he falls down and you see him at his most vulnerable and transform into like an absolute indestructive vampire, which is is such an interesting thing that you see the two poles of a person like that. Uh, And then we have this really, I don't even know what the word is, relationship between him and H.W., who is his fake son that he adopted after a fellow oil man was killed. Daniel is so like socially stunted and he seemed like disturbed by his own lack of a heart right his ambition seems to be like all that's left when he has no capacity to love other people he even admits that like there's just nothing that he likes about people he hates them and his ambition seems to like consume the part of himself that that might be filled up with affection for other people Um, this may be the best music in a PTA film done by Johnny Greenwood, who would go on to work with PTA many more times. And I have a question for you guys. Do you think at any point that Daniel genuinely loves HW? Maybe like at the beginning. So in the beginning, we have the, my like think my favorite shot of the movie where it's HW as a baby. Um, who was just playing with Daniel's mustache. And I don't know if Day-Lewis is such a good actor. Well, I know he is, but it, or what, if that's a trick, because he gives away HW, but then he wants him back once the brother thing happens. I don't know. I was so conflicted about that. And then at the end this time when I watched, and spoiler for There Will Be Blood, if, if you haven't seen it, please do. But when his son said that he's going to be an oil man too, and then Daniel starts going off about, oh, you're not my son. I only used you as a family ploy thing. I don't know if that was him revealing his cruelty or his like fear of the idea that he is eventually going to be placed, replaced by the next generation, right? That he is not a god, that he is a man who is getting older and will kind of have to succumb to time. I don't know. I just found that such an interesting dynamic that I still haven't figured out. Yeah, I mean, I took that as kind of him lashing out at the at the realization that that like you said, he's sort of part of this old guard that's eventually going to be replaced. That he's not immortal. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And if you'll indulge my pretentiousness for another second, perhaps it's like because this is maybe the one person that he has loved in his adult life. And now he's impeding on the ambition part of himself. He can't like reconcile those two things. So he has to destroy one of those parts and he destroys the love. I don't know. Maybe that's a little too English lit, but that, that was just a thought of mine. Well, I think I appreciate that insight because you, you make it so this pot is just enough English lit, just enough babbling on about nothing like, like I bring to the table. So it's fine. <laughs> no, it's. We're all we gotta, I think awesome we strike time. a good balance here. Well, I'll end this with this very astute fact that I got from IMDb. 
I don't know if this is true. This is apparently this is Jason Bateman's favorite movie. <laughs> okay. And it, it didn't even list it as a full sentence. It was just like Jason Bateman's favorite movie. I'm like, <laughs> all right, fun times. So after There Will Be Blood, we have to wait five years before we get another PTA film. And we get one that is perhaps even more confounding than There Will Be Blood. This is The Master. This is in 2012. This is also on Netflix. Um, after World War II, a disturbed veteran crosses paths with the leader of a movement known as The Cause. The two begin a codependent relationship that challenges both their beings. What did you guys think of The Master? So we're uh, talking about this beforehand. I, I enjoyed the performances. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix especially are phenomenal in this. I just did not find it that engaging. Um, like I was not, I guess the story didn't really pull me in. Um, so I, this was kind of lower on my list of PTA movies. But I think he still got performances that were incredible out of his cast. Matt, do you have thoughts on The Master? I um, I honestly I I was never able to get into it, so I never finished it. So I don't really have a full, um, thought out opinion on could it. Could you could you just talk about that a little bit? I I'm interested. Um, I don't know. I just I the story didn't hook me. I, I, like I really don't remember that much about watching it. Um, I don't know. Maybe I was distracted when I was trying to watch it or something. But um, it just it sometimes I don't know when I'm watching go to watch something if it doesn't hook me in such a way um i don't always see it to, through it to the end because this and this was a longer movie too right yeah it's very long yeah mm-hmm. so i think i maybe gave it a solid hour and i i really just i think i got bored i hate to say it because i mean he i'm i'm sure if i go back and watch it again there will be i'll have a different um perspective of it if i actually give it a fair chance but i just from what I remember of it, I just was not interested enough. I think that would be I, a cool segment for us to do one day, movies that we tapped out on. I think what this movie does well is that it kind of takes a figure that a lot of people think is ridiculous in L. Ron Hubbard um, with this fictionalized version of him. And like nowadays, looking back, you're like, how did people like get into this? And it kind of makes him this charismatic, you, f- you follow Freddie Quell, and you can see how he gets pulled into it. So I think it does that well in just showing how these people would get pulled into it. Like, it's not that ridiculous. I don't know if it, like, you know, if it worked as well as it was intended. But I, I it did show, like, an interesting side of that. Like, you know, this is how people get pulled into this rhetoric that you, looking back on, you think is ridiculous. How could anyone get in on this? Mm. Yeah, this one certainly feels like it's of a piece with There Will Be Blood. There are these two, like kind of enigmatic um, historical epics. I I think the master, like I said, even more so. The philosophy of the cause is as elusive as it is to many of the characters in the movie. Um, This might be Joaquin Phoenix's biggest transformation. I think I would have preferred him winning the Oscar for this over Joker. And I I like Joker. I'm not against it or anything. I liked his performance, but I, I think this is an even bigger transformation. The Joker did not mention Lin Lin, the city of sin, though. So. <laughs> this is true. Point, point, deduct. Uh, the relationship between Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quell is like long digested food for thought. I still haven't figured it out. Um, 
I want you guys to forgive me for being Freudian for a second. Do I have your blessing? I'll allow it. Okay, yeah. thank you, thank Go you. Go for it. I feel like Freddy is a walking id. Um, and I feel like Lancaster Dodd is, or Master is like a super ego who rejects all animal behavior and desires, um, but one, he is subject to them at certain points. And also there's something very empty about him. He presents himself as this grand figure, but for instance, in the scene where he releases book two, you get this strong preamble where he has discovered all the secrets of man and the history of humanity, and then he doesn't really have much to say of substance. Uh, which I thought was a, a very good scene, showed kind of what the movie, I don't want to say what the movie was about, but a lot of what the movie was getting at. And we get this a lot through sort of this outside POV character played by Jesse, Plam Jesse Plemons. He plays the son, and he recognizes that all of this is just being made up as it goes along. Um, so he's this interesting contrast. Freddie and Lancaster are, they have this, very odd. I don't I don't know how to characterize the relationship, but there's definitely a love and affection there. They are like permanently changed by each other, I would say. Even when everyone else around hates them, they still have it for each other. Uh, the first scene of Freddy on the beach where he's uh, doing something inappropriate to the the sand sculpture of the woman, I think is I think there's a really interesting statement at the end of this where Master says to Freddy, if you have learned how to live without serving a master, you let the rest of us know. And I, that was such, a, such an interesting kernel of an idea for me that I'm still chewing on. But I agree. It's, it's definitely more elusive and a little more distant than most of his movies. So, uh, and I know a lot of critics felt that at the time, mm -hmm. and I, I can't disagree with them at all. Um, however, I just I, I enjoy watching the movie. I uh, just wanted to go back to your point on the superego thing. Um, they said Lancaster was. And I think it was. And I think there's some moments through the movie where he just kind of, like, his ego is, like, really damaged. And he kind of lashes out briefly. Like, um, I think, like, to, to some examples I can think of is, like, the, the processing scene with Freddy. Where he's like, you're unpredictable. And Freddy farts, uh, King Richard style. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded more real than the it King did. Richard it was much though. better, much better fart. Yeah. Um, but and then he just kind of like, oh, you're just a filthy animal. Like you know, he's keeping his composure, but you can tell he's really like been offended by it. Mm. And then another one is like during the scene where the guy, I don't even know who plays him, but he just kind of like calls him out and starts like saying like he doesn't believe in what he's saying. Yeah. Um. And then, like, he's like, "You pig!" <laughs> like, and it, it, he really like when he when he gets challenged, he kind of gets like his ego bruised. He really lashes out. Exactly. He's trying to pull Freddy to be more civilized, and the cause is sort of bringing out his more animal yeah. nature. Yeah. Good point. Um, I just got one little tidbit for you. Okay. Again, don't know the validity of this. Take it with a grain of salt, but. Jeremy Renner thought of as Freddy Quell? I what? I can't even imagine that. Like no. <laughs> Can you imagine those, any of those scenes with Jeremy Renner? Like one. I do want to just visit that world where that exists. Watch the movie and then immediately leave. <laughs> Come back. To I, the I agree. World. Yes, just, just yeah. kind of pop in 
just just catch that and then you know that world can end yeah so after the mass so we have there will be blood the mass of these two really historical epics and then we get inherent vice in 2014 this is based on the novel by thomas pynchon uh, and this is about a private investigator in 70s la who investigates various disappearances how do you feel about inherent vice I was not a huge Inherent Vice fan. Like I, we talked about earlier, I don't know if the theater was just playing the sound wrong or something. I There was a lot of dialogue that was just too quiet and I missed. So I felt like I was confused for large portions of the movie. And like I just wasn't that sh- engaged enough to go back. and watch. I should. I should watch it again. Maybe I will appreciate it more. But like I just wasn't that into it that I felt no desire to go back and into it. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you. This is the one for me, the one PTA that doesn't even work as a watching experience. I just don't like it. It's a good concept and a movie that if it was made again, I think I'd probably like it. But I just find it empty of material that I enjoy. Um, and I think the, the Pynchon-esque nature of it all might have something to do with that. There are a lot of good situational setups and some funny things. I chuckled a couple times. But this is the only one that feels a little bit like a chore to me. Um, I think the narration in this is not effective, and I didn't want to hear any more of it. (laughs) Um, Although I do want to say, Eric Roberts gives a really great two-minute performance in this. And just a side note, if you want to see Eric Roberts on fire, and I mean on fire, you go watch Final Analysis, which is a movie (laughs) from the 90s with Richard Gere. (laughs) <laughs> every movie from the 90s had richard gear <laughs> I, I would love to talk about richard gear one day very interesting movie star he absolutely is yeah so go watch final analysis um <laughs> inherent vice does have like an interesting look into different sectors of this this la at the time and it does have that that very good pta kind of um immersing in the setting but i i just don't like it I feel like the whole, like, conspiracy theory L.A., like, you know, he gets deeper in the plot has been done better. Yeah. And that's just kind of why, like, I, I wasn't really necessarily engaged with this. You know, like, L.A. Um, Confidential, for yeah. example, I think does a similar story, but better. If you want to see L.A. P.I., go watch Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Yes, absolutely. Nice guys, <laughs> that's Black another movie. one that does that, it absolutely better. I love that movie. All right, and, well, not lastly, but we already talked about Licorice Pizza. So after Inherent Vice, in 2017, we get Phantom Thread. This is about a dressmaker who meets a young woman in 1950s London, setting off an addictive but venomous relationship. How did you feel about Phantom Thread? I actually didn't see Phantom Thread. Oh, okay. Well, I will tell you, I don't really like this one very much either, but I admire it. I admire it more than Inherent Vice. It's extravagant, beautiful. It's like you stepped into the closet of the world's most elegant person. Um, this did introduce me to Vicky Crepes, which I appreciate. And Daniel Day-Lewis, Daniel Day-Lewis is wonderful as ever. There's a unique dynamic in their relationship that is uh, something new that you don't often see in these kinds of romantic movies. As far as enjoyment, like I said, it's one of my lesser PTA movies, but it's very accomplished at what it's trying to do. Um, and apparently this is also dedicated to Jonathan Demi, who was a mentor to PTA. So if you have a favorite, what would you say your favorite is? Um, I'd probably say 
You know, I just really, it's weird, it's odd because it's such a different movie from, like, some of his more celebrated works, but Punch Drunk Love is probably one of my favorites. Listen, your enjoyment is your enjoyment. It's that, I'm just going to say that to everybody. Yeah. Never feel bad about your opinion. No, that's definitely, yeah, absolutely. That's fine. Yeah. I I mean, it's it's between that and Boogie Nights, probably. Yeah, Boogie Nights is incredible. I think they're both incredible. They're so, they're so different. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, only done within a few years of each other. I think, like I said, Magnolia is my favorite, but I, I love them all for different reasons. And then Licorice Pizza, which I liked very much. So yeah, that was really good. Can't wait to see what he does next. All right, that's our conversation. But we want to know what you think. We want to know what's your favorite PTA. What do you not like about PTA? What do you think about Licorice Pizza? Please write to us at Silver Screen Savers Pod at gmail.com if you like the show you could help us out a lot by rating and reviewing on apple podcasts and spotify you can follow us on twitter and instagram at screensavers pod and our facebook is silver screensavers podcast matt can be found online at maddie x sturds on everything sturds is s-t-u-r-d-z tyler where can you be found online find me on instagram or twitter at tyler sutkus sutkus is s-u-t-k-u-s you can find me on Instagram at Twitter at Michael underscore Gallat, G-A-L-A-T. And I'm also on Letterboxd at M Gallat. Thank you so much for listening. I've had a great time tonight. Tyler, say goodbye to the people. I love you, Gary. <laughs> great ending. Silver Screen Savers podcast was co-created, written, hosted, and produced by Michael Gallat, Tyler Sukis, and Matt Sturdivant. With additional editing by Matt Sturdivant. Intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay. Logo design by Nathan Seidel.